Welcome to Pivot, a podcast for church leaders sponsored by Faith Lead at Luther Seminary. Pivot invites church leaders to use disruptive moments to reimagine how they think about church, ministry, and leadership. Welcome to Pivot. I'm Terry Elton, and today's topic is telling stories. And I'm Alicia Granholm, and I would love to introduce our guest today, Alexis Roan. Alexis is an artistic theologian. She is founder of Truth Meet Story, LLC, expanding empathy one story at a time, and host of Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine at Vespers, a faith and storytelling adult series. Welcome, Alexis. We are so happy to have you with us. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you, Terry. I'm so excited to be here. So, Alexis, I want to jump right in and get your thoughts on the role that storytelling has in shaping our communities. Yeah, well, story is the uh, part of the hope chest for all of humanity. That is, we all have a story. And so we all have and or should have access to the mic because uh, my lived reality gives uh, information that you don't have because you've not lived my reality and the same with you. And the best and most accessible uh, way of, of us sharing these dynamics is simply through telling stories. So the cool thing is that, you know, we all got stories, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately we have, um, too many of us have either a fear about who should be at the mic. Uh, and then there are others who also fear uh, what it means for the stories you tell to tell on you. I'm so glad you said that. When you first said that, I thought, okay, I just saw half of our listeners go, I have to talk in the mic. I have to talk in the mic. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I want to talk about just maybe name something that, okay, I'm an ELCA Lutheran. Testimony is not a practice in many of our congregations, uh, although every now and then it happens. I want you to talk about, like, speak to me if I was in those congregation that said, I'm not a storyteller. Like, you know, like that scares me. Like I'm petrified at what you've just said. and. Even if it's like not a mic, if I would have to tell a small group of people my story, that would scare me. What would you say to people that that might be their reality? Well, I have to let you know that uh, prior to, well, my whole practice is about coaching people how to tell their story. So that's the first thing. So I got you. If you're like, I don't know how to do it, I will show you how to do it. But okay, I now remember- at least I can take it. Now at least I can take a deep breath and say, okay, yes. now, I, now I'm in, right? <laughs> I will show you. And I am so, so highly, highly effective at that. I remember uh, on one of my uh, writer in residence uh, assignments at a high school in Arizona, I am uh, characterized as delightfully dominant. And so I show up in a space and I'm very secure about who I am. And kids are like, oh my God, who is this person? And uh, I give them agency. The first thing I do is I accept my own agency. And then I say, by the time you're done with me, you too will not only own your agency, but your responsibility is to go out into the world and to gift the world the, 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 the gifts of your insight. And the most uh, credible way to do that is through your story. And so one of my students who was like deathly afraid of uh, stepping to the mic um, she stood about maybe 311 and we thought that she was born that way. Uh, but it turns out after her telling uh, one of her narrative stories, um, you know, with, with, and taking my class, 
uh, one of the story, the story that she shared was about being a, a baby and her four-year-old brother being fascinated by fire. He put her body on a burner and uh, it warped her bones and like did like, like it, she, her body was, was impaired because of this situation. And then she also was unable to walk up until like seven years old. Uh, but then she just started looking at her mother and seeing that her mother was walking and she just was so fascinated about her, like her mother being able to walk. And as she's watching her mother, while Dora, the explorer, is playing in the background, she scoots off the edge of the bed. And then at first she stands and then she takes one step and then another and another. And her mother is grabbing her and crying. And uh, and so she says, as uh, a way to close the story, is uh, one of her motivations um, is the rapper, the, the late rapper Tupac Shakur. And he had a song about brighter days and don't give up and that kind of thing. And so the whole class could connect to Tupac, but we also now understood the origin story of how she shows up in the world physically embodied. And that was only made possible, not through a testimony per se, as much as the simple story. Okay, here's what happened. The, the way that she lit up by receiving all of the love, not just from the folks in the class, but the fact that that story carried. So not everyone on campus understood uh, that she was not born this way, but they understood the tragedy that it happened, but also the resilience that she has. She's now uh, a mother and a wife. I think she was expecting her second baby and uh, just, a, just a beautiful person. But again, it was the story that uh, made room for her to give us what we all didn't know. Um, and that was her, like how she came to be this way, but also what resilience looks like what a miracle looks like without us having to be afraid of being on a public you know, school campus and, oh my God, separation of church and state. Okay, no, no, here's what happened. And then just telling that in the story. So that is why we must all take some, have a tough time at the mic. What I just loved as you were just telling that simple story was the shift from fear or not going to be accepted or not going to say the right words or whatever to like, I just left any of that and went to this person is now seen Absolutely. the complexity and beauty, the vulnerability and resiliency, the complexity of each of us, right. Came out in that simple little story that wanted that I leaned into yeah. more yeah then I got worried about the right words, right? No, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that when we spend so much time uh, worrying about the right words, what I always tell everyone, you know, as they're telling the story, I was like, listen, you're not making this up. <laughs> you were there the first time it happened. So this is not creative, you know, writing. We're like, oh my God, my sentence structure, you know, whatever. Just tell us what happened. As a matter of fact, whenever I'm coaching people to tell lot like stories for live events, I discourage them from writing it down because when we write, you know, especially those of us who spent time in the academy, you know, our sentence structure is very complex and our vocabularies, you know, thus and so. And so I had an event and a storyteller, uh, uh, a trans woman paraplegic who was accustomed to, you know, doing, you know, doing storytellings. Uh, when she imaged as a man, she broke her back on a, she was a, in the military and did a, a practice drill, her parachute didn't deploy and, you know, she uh, fell to the ground and broke her back. And so um, she was no longer uh, able to walk. And so 
you know, she transitions, um, she, you know, she, uh, has always, you know, she, she had the courage to, like, to, to, to take the step. And, uh, so I was producing this series, a live event for USA Today Network. And she was like, I, I tell stories all the time. I'm always at the mic. I'm accustomed to this, blah, 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 blah. But she wanted to write down because she wanted to get this like certain phrasing correctly. And I was like, oh God, please don't do this. I, I, I'd much rather you not. She's like, no, no, no. I do this all the time. So just trust me, I know what I'm doing. So she's the one, the very last person, one of the last storytellers, the, the last storyteller for this event. And uh, it is live streaming. It was a live event. It was a hybrid event. Uh, so we were live uh, in Nashville, but it uh, ran on all of USA Today Network's social media platforms. So big event. And then she freezes because she's so busy trying to remember what was supposed to come next. And I'm like, oh, Lord, I wish she had listened to me. Why don't they just listen to me? I know what I'm doing. And eventually she uh, found herself. But, you know, the audience, which before had been leaning in, was suddenly now, um, you know, pitying her in, in this experience. And, um, you know, she was able to find her way and continue on with the story. But she was slightly deflated after that as well. The fact that like this, this big event, uh, because she insisted on memorizing uh, I was like, listen, you don't need to memorize. Just tell us what happened. We were not there. You were there. So we won't know if you miss a, a detail about something. But I have, you know, systems for making sure you, you get all the right details in there, too. So, yeah. Gosh, thanks so much for sharing that, Alexis. I'm captivated by one of the things that I said in your intro and that I'm kind of hearing as you even share a couple of these stories is empathy. Mm. You know, yeah. and how one of your things really is helping expand empathy one story at a time. And I'm in this moment that we are in as people, as a country, as a church, I can't help but think of how invaluable empathy is. I'd love if you could just share a little bit more about that because I, I can't help but wonder if it isn't an essential component of us moving into a better future, whatever that looks like together. Absolutely. I think, and, and, and together, I want to, I want to press in on together because what empathy does is it uh, gives us access to a reality that we don't have on our own and the story telling the story becomes the the vehicle for that and uh in a different live event that i was produced that i produced for usa today network there was a um a muslim doctor a general practitioner who had a client uh who had was really excited had just come um i think it was with obamacare and uh he had uh insurance for the first time in 10 years So he was very excited to be seeing the doctor for the first time in 10 years. And so he shows up and, you know, he has to disrobe for her to, you know, to to check him out or whatever. And suddenly uh, when he takes off his shirt, there is a, a swastika that's tatted on his arm. And he stops, she stops, and then she continues the examination. And he is, uh, he's deflated as he is uh, recognizing like what the tattoo represents. And 
He's not apologizing. Uh, but also she's not giving him less quality care because she recognizes what it must have felt like for him to be 10 years without insurance. And she remembers the person who saw her in her, um, in her headdress didn't have two cents about her examining him. He had been affected by no insurance and uh, not having resources to be able to go and see the doctor. And so when he shows up, he's like, listen, I get to see a doctor and I'm grateful. And then he disrobes and she sees that he has that swastika tattooed. She's like, listen, I'm not about to make an issue with that. You are, um, you, you live in a, in a body that uh, must be taken care of. And that is what I'm here to do. So, wow. and I think all of that was possible because of just the, I guess, just the empathy of understanding what it means to be under-resourced and to, uh, you know, to not see a doctor for 10 years. And she said he had like all kinds of stuff, you know, that, that was going on with him. So she was grateful that he got in. Yeah. But that's what empathy looks like for me. It's very layered. It's not linear. Uh, it's not neat, but it goes a long way in helping us uh, towards a more compassionate world. Wow. What a, what a powerful humanity story. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we've been talking about experimenting and about then reflecting on learning, right? Like not only just trying new things, but then pausing long enough to reflect on learning. And I think part of what, what from Alicia, what you said, <clears throat> I'm really curious that not only do we reflect together on our experiments and things that we're up to, but I think spiritual meaning making happens in community right? Mm -hmm. Not only in our collective, what is worship or what is serving the neighbor, but also in our own lives. And I think storytelling has the possibility to be both communally shaping our spiritual meaning making, but also personally shaping our spiritual meaning making. And I wonder if you can kind of talk about how does story telling help us reflect on experience, mm. right? Either so, personally or communally. So during the height of the, uh, the Me Too movement, my previous uh, ministry assignment, a, Uni a United Methodist Church uh, in downtown Phoenix, Arizona, we had a, uh, a night of stories. And what was interesting about this night was that it was, a, it was the, uh, the, the whole city was invited to come out, but here was the deal. The only people who were allowed to speak were women. Men were invited to come into the space and to simply listen. And it was interesting what it felt like to make a declaration, uh, to make a space safe. That's what it is. To make a space safe for the community, to recognize that no one was going to challenge you. No one was going to ridicule you. We simply wanted to make space for the fact that there is now an awareness of a series of experiences that women have been having. And what we wanted to do as a church was to end this space to say, uh, we want you to come and to share and for all of us to just collectively have a space to lay our burdens down. And then for men to hear what it feels like to live under patriarchal norms where these kinds of things have happened and for them to hear what 
what are these kinds of things to hear them, you know, firsthand accounts, primary sources, you know, talking about that experience. And so um, the senior pastor was a man, the husbands of some of the, the, um, the wives in, in the congregation, they, they showed up and uh, they had no part on the program the whole night. And it was beautiful and it was powerful. And I had a, um, there was a young woman who I was ministering to. She had uh, been raped. And I remember telling her um, about this, this occasion. And I said, listen, like, I'm not going to force you on the mic or anything, but I want you to come and I want you, to, I just want you to come and see, just come and see, I'll, I'll pick you up. And uh, so she cried all the way to the church because she kind of almost sensed what was about to happen. I don't know. And what I didn't realize was that at the time she was thinking about, should I step to the mic? Should I step to the mic? So proof that we had really created a safe space was she was not an attendee, just an attendee. She was one who, when, uh, when she was able to, she got up to the mic and she very bravely shared her story. And listen, the other thing too, is that not every experience is suited for a seven-year-old. And so we were very careful to say that there's no judgment, there's no censoring uh, of anything in this space as you tell us what happened. And so she got to the mic and she said in no uncertain, like she didn't clean up anything and she wasn't bawling either. She was simply reporting what happened. She was doing so as an adult. And all of us just loved her and embraced her after, um, after her sharing. And what was cool for me was being able to witness someone whose shoulders were uh, higher, her head was higher. And she smiled and talked about how good it felt to not just share, but to, to share in a space and to be received so lovingly uh, after that share. It was really powerful. And it was simply her telling the story and us setting the parameters saying, okay, listen, when we talk about trying to uh, create sacred space, we're not doing equity here. We're not, you know, we're, we're not going to talk about, oh my God, that's not fair. We're not doing any of that. We have decided this is what we're going to do. Now, if, it, if we were doing it wrong, we were willing to be wrong. We just were not willing to not uh, do what felt real and right for us in the moment in that context. Mm-hmm. Gosh, Alexis, I, I just, I love that story so much. And I'm wondering, okay, for you personally, have you always been good? Like, has did storytelling come naturally to you? And have you always sensed kind of the, the importance of it in our communities and in ministry and in church? Or is it something that you've learned along the way? I've always been a, a very strong public speaker. Uh, so stepping to the mic has never been an issue for me. Writing has always been like a really beautiful, you know, expression. I've always been able to, you know, to, to do that. But the courage to be a, quote, storyteller, um, there's a lot of things that I had to do. The first is to unpack uh, any guilt or shame about where I have been. And that has been the result of my therapist (laughs) and the women's ministry retreats and the very intimate spaces where I have been able to say, here is where I've been and here is how I feel. So that was the first thing that needed to happen. Because the other thing about me is that a lot of times uh, I have not been made to feel important, valued, 
pretty uh, or any of those things. There's something that plays in my my head like I don't fit any of the the, the things that other people who steps who have access to the mic like I don't I don't really line up in that way. But I just found out recently a situation that happened when I was in middle school. I was in the seventh grade and my boyfriend was in the eighth grade. And so you have the eighth grade dance. And I went as his date. My mother brought this beautiful uh, silk pink uh, long uh, gown with a, a crop lace jacket. And so I'm his date, uh, you know, to his eighth grade prom. And then, uh, you know, unfortunately he failed the eighth grade. And so he was my date when I was in the eighth grade. And like, he, <laughs> so we, you know, he, he got to do two eighth grade dances. I got to do two eighth grade dances. He got to do two eighth grade dances and we did it together. The unfortunate thing is that I had to do the second eighth grade dance in that same dress. My mother refused to buy a new dress for me. And that year, the T-length ruffle dresses uh, in uh, 1983, like that was the popular style. Every girl at the party had the popular stylish dress. And I walk in with this pink, you know, gown with the lace jacket that I'd worn the year before. And I was just so mad and I felt so horrible like so under-resourced, like, oh my God, I can't believe my mama. She's so mean to me. She's not doing this. Well, one of my best girlfriends, her name is Renee, Renee Merchant Porter. I remember her coming up to me at the dance and saying, well, I was told that I needed to come see Alexis in this dress. Now, the way she said it, what I heard was, I need to come see, like, like, I'm, like I'm hearing, like, she's, I need to hear Alexis in this, I need to see Alexis in this dress. And so she doesn't say you look pretty or anything. She's like, mm. and then she walks off. So that made me feel even worse, right? Fast forward just this past Christmas holiday, I was in Texas and I met her for a drink and we were reminiscing. And she says, Alexis, I remember when you came into the eighth grade dance that year, you were a goddess. And I was like, wait, I was a goddess. No, everybody had the cute dresses on and whatever. And I had this thing I had to wear the year before. She was like, no, you were so beautiful. And she goes, and you had a date. And we all envy you dancing with your date. And y'all were having so much fun. Whereas the rest of the girls who didn't have dates, we just sat there. You know, we're at the eighth grade dance or whatever. And so I said to her, Renee, you have no idea how long I thought that I was ugly how long I felt like y'all were so much more stylish and how angry I was at my mother for not, you know, making an investment so that I could be cute. Like y'all, she was like, Oh no, ma'am, you were beautiful. And we were all so envious. So that long story is to simply say that I have not all the time understood who I was, how I was uh, showing up. And that is where the therapy and the intimate spaces uh, with things like women's retreats and then building um, solid relationships with women who would say to me, oh, my God, Alexis, you are beautiful. So having that, you know, building a tribe in that way has also helped. So taking all of that and saying, "Okay, I now want to write stories about girls who had the situation I did when I was in middle school. And in my having to write those stories, people wanted to know sort of the backstory. So that's kind of how I came into storytelling. But I have been fascinated by how they're not really interested in my superheroine story. They're not really interested in all of the ways that I have excelled or killed the game in life. Uh, vulnerability in storytelling is truly currency because all of us have can connect to, I, I thought that it was this thing. Like I felt this way and then somebody comes and 
and completely uh, pivots <laughs> my understanding of, of, of who I am and, uh, and, and how I'm seen. So yeah, that was a lot. I hope I, I'm sure I answered it and prayerfully the, your listeners will be like, okay, yes. And taking notes and they'll replay that part. <laughs> yes. No, it's amazing. And you are beautiful. And I, um, Alexis, I can't help but remember, cause I also think it was when I was in eighth grade, maybe it was when I was in fifth grade, <clears throat> these winter boots that my aunt was convinced because they were my size and I had big feet as a kid that I should have. And I thought they were hideous and I was mortified to wear them. And for whatever reason, like, I'm sure I wanted like moon boots or something, right? Like I wanted the thing and I had to wear in my mind, like these hideous brownish purple boots all winter long. And it was like the death of me that whole winter and Minnesota winters, they are not short. So it was like a, the long, slow death. So, right. Like it's amazing how some of the, that was, I don't even want to think about how long ago that was. It was a while ago. It wasn't yesterday. Let me say that was not yesterday. But I I love how you bring up the element of vulnerability that is so powerful when it comes to first, you know, owning our stories and owning our experiences. And then also the vulnerability that it takes to share them. And there's, you know, as you say, like vulnerability is currency and it really is. And I don't think we give it the weight that it really carries and holds. And what I'm trying to say is like, I think so often we have all these filters going on in our head that for one reason or another is telling us, ah, but that's not, that's not that important to share. So don't say anything, Mm. you know, like that doesn't, that doesn't really matter. That thing that happened good, bad, or otherwise, you know, and, and, and so we just, we have these filters that are playing all the time that 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 basically tell us like someone else should have the mic. I like I don't have anything <laughs> to say. I don't have anything to say. I'm just I'm just gonna be here and listen. You know? Yeah, yeah. Frank Peretti tells a beautiful story about you know he was you know massive New York Times bestseller of the uh, the, the the series because it came out like the early to mid eighties, this present darkness. And he was dealing with, you know, a lot of, uh, like it was like little church, uh, a little bit of church, but like kind of the occult, like kind of like putting all of that in, in, in story form. And he's like a master storyteller. And I love it. But he did a speech when he was supposed to be talking about, I guess his, you know, I'm a New York times bestseller and I'm, you know, championing for Jesus in a, you know, and, you know, in a way that is real and right for me, like in this culture that, you know, is venerating, you know, a lot of the um, occult practices, but for whatever reason, he felt compelled to share a story about being bullied as a little boy and how he, I was prematurely developed. He was underdeveloped and uh, had like this, this this condition with his body or whatever, so that he's in high school, but he looks like, you know, an ele- he's, he's the body of an elementary school age child. And so he's telling the story. And so he's normally accustomed to people laughing and you know, raucous cheering and that sort of thing. But when he told this story, you know, people were, were silent and he didn't really know how to, to take that. And he said, uh, one by one, people started coming up to him in tears, telling their story of being bullied. And uh, he eventually wrote the that autobi- I guess that autobiography, a wounded warrior. And uh, while I was fascinated by his 
fiction story, his, his ability to, to weave Christian themes and fiction uh, and spirituality, just big spiritual things, uh, big, scary demon spirits he could always paint. And I often wondered after reading like this present darkness, like, oh my God, how did he learn to tell like write demons so well? Like what the devil, like, what did he see? And then I read Wounded Warrior and I cried because I was like, ah, those were the demons. Okay. I see it now. And my heart broke for him, but I appreciated to have that, that bit of information about him, that it wasn't just New York Times bestseller, which we love in this, in this context to venerate all of the ways that everybody is winning. But when he told the story about being bullied, that's when he was relatable and his experience was accessible uh, to all of us. And I think even a commitment to take bullying seriously because of like the lifetime impact that it has, but to also know that healing is also a real thing. Or sometimes you still have that pain. Uh, even after being a New York Times bestseller, you go back to high school and you, you still cry, you know, about that experience. And that's also a, a, a reality. Just make room for all of us to just tell the truth about who we are, where we've been and how it feels. So, yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. You are so right. I want to introduce our spiritual practice that we've been doing one of these for each of the episodes in this season of Pivot. And today we are talking about spiritual conversations and this will be available as a download in our show notes. So I'll just briefly go through the questions and share a little bit about this practice because it helps participants gain more confidence and comfort really in talking about God in normal everyday conversations. In this practice, we're encouraged to really name how we see God at work in our everyday lives in ways that you know, might make sense uh, to those who don't necessarily share our faith background. And it's really simple practice of gathering a group of friends, beginning the time with prayer. And then each time you gather, asking one person to speak and to have them share, you know, 15 to 20 minute testimony, answering the two questions, why am I a Christian and what difference does Jesus make in my life? And then getting into small groups of two to three people to reflect together on what they heard and then coming back together and sharing what it was like to do this. And so I'd love just to take a minute right now and have each of us share about the difference that Jesus makes in our everyday life. I want to jump in and just make a statement that I think is is maybe kind of funny to some people, but maybe not to others. We actually did this at Luther Seminary for several years prior to the pandemic. And what we what it came up from is we just didn't really have spaces to just, even at a seminary, right? Maybe that's true of a church or a other kind of ministry. And we just had soup and free soup and lunch every Wednesday and invited staff and faculty and students and rotated through that. And oh my gosh, how powerful this was. I never was picked before the pandemic, good or bad or whatever, but I always imagined, okay, what would be the story that I would tell? So here's my story. I'm just going to give you the minute version. But at 25, I was married for just over a year and it was awful and it was a dead end marriage. And I was a young adult and I just didn't see a way forward. And I spent months and months and months praying and in conversations with people, God, what am I to do? And there was one morning I was sitting in our empty chapel at our congregation before my day of work and Romans 5, 8 came up that while we were still, still sinners, Christ died for us. And 
It occurred to me that before I was ever born, God knew my limitations. And I was freed from the power and weight of the decision and free to explore God and accept God's love in a way that was freeing and literally set me like turned that that heavy burden into a moment of what's abundant living look like and it changed the question and it changed the trajectory so that's that's my why Jesus story Jesus showed up in a quiet chapel when I was 25 and searching Amen. All of that is so beautiful. And I think that's why what I tell all 20 year olds, anybody in their 20s, I was like, listen, I forgive you in advance. So like, <laughs> yeah, 10 years. When you turn 30, we have a different conversation. But at 20, it's like, okay, oh, you, okay. Oh, how do you, okay. Forgiven in advance. Okay. We're, we're, we're good. But yeah, that, that is so powerful, Terry. Jesus shows up for me. I was behaving badly. Uh, so my, 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 my spiritual practice, my daily spiritual practice, weather permitting, is to take a sunrise divine hours prayer walk. And uh, I stopped by a coffee shop uh, that's open at like, you know, 4.35 o'clock in the morning so that I can grab my coffee and be in place because I want to watch the entire production. Well, one Sunday morning, the barista at the window was just kind of she was delaying. I mean, I'd like, she, she was talking to somebody else. She's giving them some directions. My coffee is there. And I'm like, wait, I got to get in place before the sun comes up. And so when she finally stops talking to them, remembers that I'm sitting there at the window and that my coffee is also there. She hands it to me and I snatch it. I just snatch it out and I drive off. I went that whole week feeling horrible that I had acted so petty behind this coffee. And so the next Sunday I went back sunrise before the sun came up, ordered my standard coffee and she was the barista at the window. And so I said to her last Saturday, I was here last, last Sunday. Sorry. I was here. And the, because I spent that week, like, what if she's a racist? What if this is like, you know, what, why, why is she like doing this? Like, what if she's doing this intentionally? So I'd re- I was writing all of these really bad narratives about her. I don't, know, I don't know who she is and I don't know what, what the intentions were, but my spirit condemned me. And so I went back that following Sunday, she's at the window. And I say to her, um, when she has the coffee, I say, last Sunday, I was trying to get in place for sunrise and my coffee was at the window and you were talking with someone. And when you handed it to me, I snatched it from you. And I said, and I have gone the whole week so embarrassed that I did that. I was like, I I was, I'm so sorry. I say, and so I'm so grateful that I have the opportunity to tell you today that last week I was silly and immature over a cup of coffee. So please forgive me. And also I, I pray that you are blessed to not encounter anybody like who I was last week. I hope that, you know, for the rest of, of your shift, you have just amazing people. And she was really caught off guard, but she was, you know, but pleasantly so. And she was very kind. And we, you know, chatted for a bit. And I just told her, I was like, yeah, it's like, you know, I, I go and I, you know, go, you know, catch the sun sunrise. And like, you know, I want to be in place before the whole, you know, production comes up and, and all of that. And so she's like, wow, that sounds so cool. So we're just kind of talking. And uh, yeah, I just thanked her for being gracious. And I drove off. And so what does Jesus do for me? Well, Jesus... Uh, is like, okay, what you're not going to do 
is bear my name and show up in the world acting any kind of way, even if they don't say anything to you or whatever, okay, what you're not going to do. So that's the, that's the difference that, uh, that, that Jesus makes the humility, the humility that I have, the vulnerability to go and put myself in the space, um, because she, she, she's a worthy person and I was horrible. No, thanks for sharing that, Alexis. I think right now I'd have to say that the difference that Jesus makes notably uh, for me is is as a mom to two little boys. And uh, my oldest is very much like me. And so as we all know, uh, we are bound to butt heads, right? Uh, in more ways than one. And I think for me right now, in a similar vein, Alexis, it's, I know I'm forgiven. And it's in that place of forgiveness already that I have the courage to go to my son and apologize time and time again, (laughs) right? Like, and I tell my husband all the time, I'm like, gosh, I hate that I have to say I'm sorry. I just want to be a perfect parent. Nobody else needs to be, but like, why can't I? This is so irritating to me. And it really is like Jesus who who gives me the courage to humble myself, go to my four-year-old and apologize for being mean or rude or getting big and raising my voice or, you know, whatever it is that I need to apologize for this time. And without knowing that I'm already forgiven, I think it would be so difficult for me to really approach my son in this place of humility as a parent. And, you know, it, I would say parenting has been the most humbling experience of my life. And I just, I'm so grateful, right? I just literally, I see Jesus show up every single day, whether it's wisdom and how to, you know, handle something or approach something or talk about something, or just in humbling me and empowering me to, to, to go and apologize to my kid. So that is the difference Jesus is making right now for me. Yes. (laughs) And Alicia, you bring me back to different points in my life when I'm like, oh yeah, I did that. And oh yeah. Alicia, I still remember my kids are almost 30. So I remember those moments. Bless you for showing up every day. They're a lot of energy. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Yes, they are. They wake up with it, right? Like if you could, if coffee could do the same thing as they do when they wake up. Like if there was that sugar, right? No, they're awake. They're ready to go. Let's go. Let's go. (laughs) I'm awake. My eyes are open. Ready to go. (laughs) I know. Alexis, thank you for the work that you do, the, the empowerment and the encouragement that you give people to take the mic up. Right. And, and you said, you reminded us that we all have agency and part of that is in the beautiful and broken story of our life, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And the ability to share those, to listen to each other's stories is, mm-hmm. is a gift that keeps giving. And I thank you each for sharing your stories today. Thank you. We hope this episode of Pivot has been helpful for you. And join us next week when we're going to talk about piloting. Stay tuned. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Pivot Podcast. For more leadership resources, go to faithpluslead.luthersem.org.
www.edu.edu.